I have a lot of stuff that I can talk about. I'm gonna to try to kind of work through the whole liturgy if we can, or at least see how far we can, we can get. Um, but I hope that if you just have questions along the way, you'll just raise your hand. We can just stop, talk through it, address it. Um, but I'm gonna kind of walk through this Sunday's liturgy so you'll get a kind of uh, uh, foretaste of what's to come. But um, before we do that, let me open us in prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Lord, make us have perpetual love and reverence for your holy name. For you never fail to help and govern those whom you have set upon the sure foundation of your loving kindness. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Okay. Before I jump into this, I want to say just a couple of things about liturgy, kind of in general, uh, what it is, why we do it, and what it does for us. So I think you could probably identify a number of kind of functions of the liturgy, you might say, or things that it does, but I kind of like to boil it down to two things. Uh, liturgy helps us worship God, and it sanctifies us, right? Those are kind of the two elements. And I think most things that you can say about the liturgy, you can kind of locate under one of those two things. So briefly on the first item, worshiping God, I'm going to kind of say more about that as we get into the actual liturgy. But remember, the word worship, uh, pretty straightforwardly, just means, right, to show the worthiness of, to show the worth-ship of someone, to give honor, right, or reverence to someone, to give them their due. So you can think of the various ways that we do this in our, in our public life, for instance. Uh, when we give someone an award, right, a medal of honor or something, uh, or when we have a funeral, right, when we want to honor someone's life, right, or when we swear someone into public office, right, these different kinds of ways of recognizing um, honor and ascribing honor to someone, what do we do? Well, we seem to find it most appropriate, it seems to me, for these occasions to conduct our business together with order and reverence. We like to kind of plan it out, right? We don't want these kind of loose parts that we're not sure what's going to happen at this time, right? Um, we don't want spontaneity or kind of randomness. We want it to be ordered, right? Either because we think that somehow kind of the chaos or the spontaneity kind of threatens the reverence of the service that we're holding, or because we're afraid it might distract from the purpose why we're there, right? So we want to plan what's going to happen so that we can more fully kind of enter into the reverence of this service. The same goes with God, right? When it comes to the principal service of Christian worship, that is Holy Eucharist, as well as the other uh, services, we want to kind of intentionally structure our time together so that we're not kind of wasting time, right? We're not, uh, uh, we don't find ourselves in the middle of the service doing something that we later regret doing, for instance, or something like this. We want to kind of plan it out so that we can appropriately and duly give reverence and honor to God. Okay, that's the first part, worship God, kind of straightforward. And I'll say more about that as we kind of get into the liturgy. But the second thing that liturgy does is that it sanctifies us. It does something to us, right? The way I like to talk about this is that liturgy is about three things, fundamentally, when it comes to us. It's about desire, it's about language, 
and it's about kind of uh, our vision or our sight, right? And the liturgy works to transform us on these kind of three places, right? So first, when it comes to desire, right? Um, I think St. Augustine uh, really had a good handle on this. He, he said that what we are most fundamentally are desiring beings, right? Or th things that love. That kind of like is what constitutes us as humans. He actually, at one point in the sermon that he gives to his congregation, he refers to his congregation uh, as bundles of loves, right? Kind of what makes you up as a person are these multiple loves or desires that you have for God, for each other, for the beautiful things of the world, right? But what happens in sin uh, and after the fall is that our, des our desires become distorted and disordered, is what Augustine says, right? We begin to love things, that, uh, things of the world as if they are God, right? We don't have them kind of properly ordered. So what the liturgy does is it kind of works to reorder the things that we desire and we love. Now this can work, uh, you can think most clearly about how this might work in um, how we come to love uh, Christ in the sacrament, right? Um, the things that we do around the sacrament when we say honor it by genuflecting or kneeling or bowing or receiving with reverence, right? We're coming to, to love Christ in the sacrament, right? We're coming to order our loves. Second thing is language. Um, when I first became an Anglican, uh, I was really fascinated by all these written prayers. I thought they were really beautiful. And uh, I decided to go to seminary because I wanted to become a priest. And what we did in seminary is we prayed morning and evening prayer every day, these same prayers, these rituals. Um, and what would happen is that, uh, especially with these things called canticles, which are kind of sung prayers, sung uh, uh, passages from scripture, I would find myself throughout the day as I was washing dishes or walking home from school or what have you, um, kind of just out of habit, starting to sing the canticles, right? Or as I was uh, in a prayer group with, say, a small group or something, and it would come my turn to prayer, I would start praying, but then all of a sudden these phrases, right, from the liturgy would kind of creep into my prayers, right? There's a way in which the liturgy of the church was starting to kind of shape my own spirituality, my own life of prayer, right? Often we think of language, right, as kind of a tool that we use to express ourselves, right? We have something we want to say to someone, and so we kind of find the words, assemble them together, and then express it to someone, right? But language also kind of works the other way, too, right? Not just what we express, but it kind of works on us, right? It changes how we think about the world. Um, and so what happens in the liturgy is we acquire this language to talk about God, to pray to God, and it begins to kind of transform how we think and pray to God. The ancient Christians had a, a, a phrase for this. They called it lex orandi, lex credendi, right? The law of faith or the law of prayer is the law of belief, right? There's a way in which what you pray comes to determine what you believe. That as you start kind of repeating liturgies and prayers, you come to actually believe what, what you're saying when you say them, right? Okay. Desire, language, and then the third one is um, vision or sight, how we see the world. What we do in the liturgy comes to kind of shape how we see the world uh, outside of the church. Maybe most importantly, what we come to learn in the liturgy is um, how to behold kind of um, the world as sacrament, right? 
that there are certain material things that convey the immaterial and visible grace of God, right? And just as we see that in the sacraments, in the, in the, in the liturgy, and the symbols that we use, so also we go out into the world and we're able to kind of see the world sacramentally, right? As a bearer of God's grace to us, that all creation is a, is a means of God's grace, right? Okay, what does all this mean? It means that liturgy, when it comes to us, is a kind of formation, right? Call it a spiritual formation or a moral formation or something like this, right? When we talk about the liturgy forming us, you may hear people speak in that way. What we're talking about are these three things, right? The liturgy comes to order our desires, right? It comes to, it, it shapes how we speak, right, about ourselves, the world, and God, and it shapes how we see the world sacramentally. So I had this um, professor in divinity school. He was uh, notorious for having these little catchphrases uh, or, 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 or little maxims, you could say. Uh, and he would say, he would always say this. He was an ethicist, and so he would say, you can only act in the world you can see, and you can only see the world you can speak. Okay, so what did he mean by this? He meant that how we speak, the kind of language that we have to talk about things, actually determines in a large part how we come to act in the world, right? Morally, in worship, together, right? These sorts of things. So you can think about, for instance, think about um, some of the contemporary kind of uh, social and political debates that we have. There's part of the reason for these kind of impasses in argument, right, is that people are speaking different languages, right, to talk about things. So when it comes to abortion, say, you have a group of people who are referring to something as a fetus and a group of people who are referring to something as a child, right? Now, how you actually, the language you use to talk about the life that's in the mother's womb, right, is going to determine in many ways the policy, the kind of moral uh, demands around that. Or think uh, perhaps more uh, kind of relevant to this past week, how we talk about people who cross the border into our country. Are they, quote unquote, aliens or are they migrants, right? How you talk about it determines how you're going to proceed to act in terms of uh, your moral response, your policy, right? Well, the same thing happens when it comes to, right, being a Christian. The kind of language that we have available to us um, really determines how we're going to relate to God and each other. And so what the liturgy does is it provides you with a language, a really rich language, right? That same professor that I mentioned, he would often talk about Christianity as being a learning of a language, right? And how do you learn a language? Well, one way is that you can pick up a grammar book and you can start with chapter one and you can start working through it. That's one way to do it. Another way is to go to the kind of culture or society that you want to learn the language of and start hanging out with them, right? Start going to the market, start observing how they speak about things, the kinds of colloquialisms that they use, how they kind of speak and practice, right? You begin to kind of be habituated into this language, how to speak it, right? Okay, move back to the liturgy. If the liturgy is a language, you might say this is the church's language, how the church has decided she wants to speak about God in the world and herself, right? The best way to learn the language is to kind of get into the liturgy, to start, st to start saying it, start praying it, right? And you're going to come to find that it actually works on you 
and changes how you see God and the world and, our, and yourself and each other. The liturgy is the language the church speaks, right? Okay, that's my little thing on what the liturgy is, but let's actually kind of get into it. Um, and I want to kind of just work through these various parts of the liturgy. So from the earliest kind of uh, historical accounts that we have of how Christians worshiped and some of the earliest liturgies that we have, um, we know that they've structured their liturgies around two kind of primary activities, right? One was um, hearing the word of God read aloud and then explained, right, taught, um, because most Christians were not literate, right, and there weren't kind of Bibles sitting around that you could kind of pick up and read. The way that most people would come to kind of learn about the Bible was to hear it read, and specifically in church, read aloud. That's why we keep this tradition of reading aloud going. And then the second thing was to celebrate the Lord's Supper. So in our liturgy, you can kind of divide the liturgy in these two primary parts. We call the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table. Now, as kind of liturgies progressed in Christian history, um, they became more elaborate, and we started to kind of add in different things, right? And one of the things we added was a kind of section of the liturgy before the liturgy of the word, the reading of scripture, right? And we can kind of broadly call this the entrance rite, how we actually kind of formally proceed into worship, right? So the first thing that happens on a Sunday morning is that someone in the back yells out, please stand, right? And then we all stand. And then uh, Jeff Fisher, whoever is leading music, will start the organ up, right? And we'll begin by singing a song. We call it the processional hymn. And uh, the clergy will, and the acolytes will process in, right? Now, this is not actually the beginning of the liturgy. It is a way of kind of warming up for the liturgy to start, right? So what the hymn is intended to do is to prepare us for the liturgy to start by uniting us together, right, in a kind of common spirit of worship, right? And music is especially able to do this, right? When you sing in a group of people, there's this kind of sense that you get that you're kind of closer to them than if you were to say, just be speaking something together, right? There's a kind of way that music and the harmonies of music unite our hearts and minds together in order to approach uh, the Lord and worship together. Often, the hymn that's chosen is kind of seasonally appropriate, right? It's a kind of one chosen specific to the liturgical season that we're in. As we start singing, you will see a procession come in with the clergy and acolytes, and they'll be processing, holding things, right? Um, torches, the, the candles up here, right? The crucifix, uh, often incense, right? The gospel book will be kind of processed up high. These are the sacred items of the service, right? And we bring them in and kind of will display them, right, for the congregation to kind of look upon and reverence them, right? These are sacred holy items. The point of all this is to say we begin the liturgy not by kind of moving from informal conversation, kind of hanging out in the nave to all of a sudden, all right, now we're, now we're suddenly in the liturgy. We have this way of kind of like walking into it, right? And that's through the procession. We process solemnly, right, uh, into the liturgy. We, we approach God at the table slowly, right, with reverence. We bow 
and we enter in prayer and praise. Once the hymn ends, you hear this moment of silence, and then the celebrant begins with this, the opening acclamation, Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the people respond, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. This is the beginning of the liturgy. And it's important to say that, right? How we begin the service tells you a lot about kind of what we think we're doing when we worship, right? We don't begin the service by saying, Welcome, everyone, to Christ Church Waco. We're so glad you're here, blah, 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 right? Uh, as if kind of the point of the service was us, right? We kind of do that before the service starts. We do say a word of welcome. We kind of make some announcements, right? But that's not the beginning of the service. The beginning of the service is directed explicitly and solely to the triune God, right? How we begin kind of orients us in the liturgy and tells us what we're here for, right? This uh, opening acclamation is rooted in, um, in some of the Jewish synagogue liturgies that begin this way. Blessed be God, right? Benedictus, blessed be God. But as Christians, what we do is we kind of take up that ancient prayer and we, what's the right word for this? Trinitize it. If I could use Trinity as a verb, right? We, we, we say that the God of Israel is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And from here on out uh, in the liturgy, you're going to notice that the liturgy is shaped in this Trinitarian fashion, right? It's shaped around these uh, uh, triple references to God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. The opening acclamation. And then the collect for purity. Now, this prayer dates back to about the 11th century. Um, and it's it echoes in many ways the prayer in Psalm 51 that David prays to God after he has sinned so greatly, and he prays for what? For purity, for cleansing, right? Now, originally, uh, the prayer was used kind of silently by the celebrant in the liturgy, the priest, to prepare to celebrate the Holy Eucharist. So they would say it back in the vesting room as they were putting on their vestments, and it was a way of kind of getting right of getting ready to go celebrate the Eucharist, to kind of purify oneself. What Thomas Cranmer, one of the kind of founders of the Anglican liturgical tradition, does is uh, on a number of occasions, he likes to take these prayers that were used just for the priests, and he loves to give them to everyone, right? So that's what he does. He, he makes it public. He makes it part of the official uh, said liturgy. What does this prayer do? Well, look through it. And you'll notice it does a few things, right? First, it kind of lays us bare before God, right? It rids us of kind of all our pretensions and, that we come with in worship, our self-centeredness, right? Any, any idea that what we're doing here might really have something to do with kind of a performance, right? Or something about us, right? And then it asks for divine assistance, right? It says we can't actually worship properly at all except by grace, right? And so it asks for divine assistance that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name, right? Uh, that is, we can't just kind of assume that we can pray and praise and worship on our own. We actually don't have that capacity. We need to be given it by grace, right? Okay. Next, we say the summary of the law, which... Um, is a kind of replacement. One, one of the uh, things that the reformers did, both on the continent and in England, 
was to reinsert the Decalogue into liturgy. This is something we still do during Lent, right? You remember during uh, Lent, we process around saying the litany, and then we get up to the front, and then we read the whole Decalogue uh, part by part and respond in repentance, right? During the rest of the church year, we kind of shorten it, right? We do a summary of the law. And luckily enough, Jesus gave us a summary of the law. So we're in good company. In the Gospel of Matthew, remember, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? He is asked uh, by, by the teachers of the law to kind of trip him up, right? And he responds, and he says, right, it's not so much that they ask him, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, it's not so much that there's a one that's greater than others, it's that they can all be summed up in this one or two commandments, right? That all of the law hangs on these two commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor. Okay? So we proclaim the summary of the law, and then we respond to that, right, in penitence, the curia. Now, we hear this prayer, Lord, have mercy upon us today, as a kind of penitential prayer, and that's, I think that's right, we should hear that, um, because when we hear the law, the first thing we realize is that we have not kept the law, right? We failed to keep it, and so we need to immediately repent of our failure to keep the law. It's a kind of mini-confession, if you will. It kind of prefigures the confession to come, because later in the liturgy, we'll hear the scriptures read, right? And we'll hear again how often how much we failed in obedience, and so we'll be prompted to confession and repentance. But here we do it in kind of short form, right? We hear the whole law summed up, and we respond in repentance. But actually, the kind of background of this was not so much penitential. Um, it actually is taken from a pagan context. It actually is taken from pagan public life uh, in the ancient world in which when an emperor would arrive, uh, often from, say, a battle or something, he'd, he'd come back into the town, uh, this was uh, the response of the people. they say, Kyrie eleison, right? Lord have mercy upon us. It was a kind of ancient way of saying, basically, God bless the queen, right? Or something like this. Now, early Christians uh, were people who were really committed to the lordship of Christ, and that meant that if someone else was claiming that they were Lord, uh, the Christians were pretty ready to undermine that, especially when it came to Caesar, right? If there's a, a kind of political figure around, you know, going around commanding people saying, Lord, have mercy, the Christians are going to say, no, uh, we're taking that for the one Lord, Jesus Christ, right, who is Lord over all creation, and actually uh, that's going to be part of our worship, right? It doesn't have any of that pagan political significance anymore. We're stripping of that, and we're kind of stealing it from you. Augustine called this, uh, and he was speaking in more general terms, right, as plundering the Egyptians, right? Taking the best, kind of coolest parts of paganism and being like, that's too good. We're not going to let you have that. We're going to take that, and we're going to use it to worship God, right? And that's what the Christians do. They take this kind of political slogan, and they totally subvert it and say, no, there's one Lord Jesus, and we're worshiping him. Okay, that's the Kyrie. Then we're moving right along to the song of praise, which often is the Gloria, the Gloria in Excelsis, right? This is one of the most kind of common prayers of early Christianity. Uh, it was used especially in uh, daily prayers by Christians. And it is a song of praise, right? You can kind of read through it, and it's a, especially with the music that we put to it, 
Uh, it's a jubilant song. It's a song of rejoicing, which is why when we enter into the seasons of Lent um, and Advent, we don't do the glory. We kind of save it for Easter, right? It's a song of praise. And you'll notice, um, and some of you may actually participate in this, when we sing the Gloria, there are four different places where we do bows, right? There are two at the holy name of Jesus. Um, you can kind of see here, Lord Jesus Christ, Holy Son of the Father, right? We bow in reverence to his holy name. There's one that we say at the phrase, receive our prayer. We kind of bow as we say that as a gesture of humility to God, um, that he doesn't have to receive our prayer, right? But we ask in his grace and mercy that he will. And um, what's the last one? Oh, we worship you, right? As a gesture of reverent worship, that uh, when we say we worship you, we really mean it. We're going to show it with our bodies, right? We adore you. We worship you. This is a prayer that is of the congregation, right? There's a way in which the College for Purity is a prayer that the priest of the celebrant prays on behalf of the people and invites them to pray with him, right? But the glory is the song of the church, right? It's the song that um, the whole congregation is invited to sing, to make it their own, right? The other thing that we do at this point is to sense the altar. We'll take the incense, right? And we'll move and we'll sense different parts of the altar. So that moves me to want to say something about incense in the liturgy, what it is and what we're doing when we're using it. Okay. I don't know how you've heard incense talked about in liturgy. Often people will talk about it as kind of symbolizing the prayers of the church, right? Ascending to God, right? As a sweet aroma pleasing to God, right? That's certainly true. Uh, other people talk about it as like, look, in liturgy, we want to make this space the most beautiful space that we can because we're doing the most beautiful thing on earth, right? Celebrating the holy mysteries of our Lord's Supper. That's no doubt true, and so we want to use right, beautiful smells and bells and music and these sorts of things. But there's one component of the use of incense in liturgy that I think is really important to kind of get a handle on. So in the ancient world, both in, uh, in, in Christian antiquity and in pagan antiquity, incense was used when a kind of distinguished guest would come to visit either your home or, or some uh, public meeting or something like that, right? And it was a sign, basically, that you were acknowledging that, um, in, in a sign of reverence, that an important person was there, right? So you're going to kind of light up something expensive that smells really good to recognize that someone important has kind of walked in the building, right? Uh, think in the Gospels. Uh, Mary does this when she anoints Jesus' feet, right? She takes something that's precious and expensive and smells uh, beautiful, right? And she anoints Jesus' feet as a sign of reverence to him. Right? What we do when we are using incense in the liturgy is we're naming Christ's presence with us, right? That the Lord of the universe is here in this church, right? And specifically, we want to use it to recognize, this, to recognize the places in the liturgy where he's made himself present, right? So where does he do that? Well, we know he does that um, in his holy word. Right? And so when we bring the gospel out to be read, the words of Jesus himself proclaimed to the church, we take the incense and we sense the book. And we say, Jesus is here in this word, right? In this word to you, right? Or 
Um, the other place that he makes himself present to his church is on the altar, right? And so at uh, a couple different points, we uh, use incense to signify that. At the beginning of the liturgy, we prepare the altar to receive his presence upon it, right? And so we sense it, we sanctify it. And then once the liturgy actually starts, we bring it back out again and we're sensing, actually we're sensing the gifts themselves that will become the body and blood of Christ, right? So the incense is supposed to get you to think, okay, this is it. Christ is really here in this moment, right? And we have all the smells to kind of show that he is. Right? Yeah. Why is it used all the time? Oh, used all the time. Well, um, it's kind of, I, I think about it as um, kind of designating particular points. Of course, we know that Christ is, first of all, always present with us, you know, in a very real way, in the world and in the church. Secondly, he's always present with us in the church, but he's especially present in a real, we call it the real presence of Christ, right, uh, in the Holy Sacrament. And so we mark that. It's, a, it's also a kind of way of um, letting the congregation know of what's happening, right? When you start to see and smell this, you know something important is going on. Similar thing happens with the bells, right? The purpose of the Sanctus bells when they're rung is to kind of get your attention to say something's happening, and usually it's um, that Christ is making himself present in this moment. So at the words of institution at the Holy Sacrament, you'll hear the bells rung. Or when the sacrament is elevated, you hear the bells rung. And they also work in that same way to say, pay attention, uh, breathe this in, smell it, hear, right? All these kind of appeals to your senses to say, uh, wake up. <laughs> if you fell asleep during the liturgy, wake up. Jesus is here in the, in the liturgy. That makes sense. Oh, at every service, yeah. Well, um, that's a good question. I would love to do that at every service. Uh, <laughs> And uh, at, some, at some parishes, they do do it at every service. They call it a solemn mass, right? And at some churches, um, they don't use incense at all. So those kind of decisions on when to use it is really kind of just at the discretion of the church for kind of practical reasons. Um, often liturgy is kind of especially associated with a feast, right? And so we'll do it during festal services and festal seasons, namely the season of Easter or at high holy days of Christmas and these sorts of things. Um, yeah. Maybe make an appeal to Father Lee and say, hey, uh, maybe we should use incense at every service. But I realize also it's difficult for some people too, right? Uh, it, it becomes difficult for some people to breathe. And so that's part of why we don't use it at every service too. Yeah. Okay, let me do one more thing and then we'll stop for some more questions too. And that is the collect of the day. Okay. So up until now, the celebrant and the priest have been facing the altar, right? We've been addressing God with the congregation, but then all of a sudden, the celebrant turns around and he faces you and he just starts talking to you, right? And you begin this exchange, right? The Lord be with you and with your spirit, right? And then we begin the collect. The celebrant is inviting you to pray with him this prayer, right? That's literally what the collect means, right? It's a common prayer that attempts to kind of gather together to collect the prayers of the congregation into one prayer, right? And often what this is going to do is it's going to assemble and collect your prayers and kind of bring it into the, the kind of liturgical theme of that day, right? 
Sometimes it'll even kind of gesture to the readings that are about to come, but often it will invoke something about the liturgical season or um, the meaning of that liturgical celebration that's to follow, right? Um, collects will almost always be composed of three parts, right? Um, there's first the invocation and kind of usually some description of an attribute of God, right? Um, so in this one, this is this week. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things. It's going to begin by identifying something about God before we even move to make a petition, right? Then we make the petition, right? Graft in our hearts the love of your name. And then it follows with these subsequent petitions, right? It's going to say, first, um, it's basically a way of saying, because we know this about you, God, we can ask this of you, right? With confidence, right? And then it, and then it concludes with the doxology, right? Invoking uh, often the, the, the Trinitarian name. I like to think about it like this. Um, it's kind of like, uh, say, you're a kid and you go to your parents. Uh, maybe you can drive, but you don't have a car yet. And you say, uh, Dad, I need to go to the library and study, but you have the keys, right, to the car. Can I have your keys so that I can go to the library to study, right? It's saying, I'm only able to do this good thing because there's something about you that can enable me to do it, right? You have the keys, therefore, please give them to me and let me drive to the library to go do this good thing to study. Okay, so that, with the college, concludes the entrance right. Any questions on that beginning part of the liturgy. We're gonna start booking it through the next two parts, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table. Because the liturgy of the word is kind of straightforward, right? It's the reading of scripture and then the uh, proclamation of the gospel by explaining the scriptures in the homily. I'm gonna kind of move somewhat quickly through this um, so we can get to the liturgy of the table. So we begin by uh, reading from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? And these come from the lectionary, of course, right? We don't just kind of make up what we're going to read each Sunday. They're actually prescribed for us from this thing in the back of the prayer book called the lectionary, and it kind of lays out for you each Sunday what readings to use. The point being, right, that we don't kind of just make it up as we go along, but we're actually using the same readings as the whole church, right? Uh, no matter where you go, kind of, uh, uh, in, into an Anglican church on a Sunday morning, you're going to hear the same uh, readings, right? And the point is to structure them, right? So that we're, kind of, we're not kind of selectively picking and choosing from our favorite parts, right, and reading them over and over again. My church growing up is a kind of Baptist church, and uh, man, I knew a lot about the Apostle Paul, but that's about it. <laughs> it seemed like there was a lectionary that took us through the letters of Paul, but not really anything else, right? The point of the scriptures being read is that you're reading through basically the whole Old Testament uh, and the New Testament in a three-year cycle, right? Okay, we respond, oh yeah. That's a good question. So. Um, here at Christchurch, we use the lectionary in the Book of Common Prayer, which is specific to our tradition that comes out of the, the English Reformation. 
What happened uh, a couple decades ago is that there was an ecumenical movement of Catholics, mainline Protestants, I think even Orthodox, to come up with a kind of common lectionary. It's called the Revised Common Lectionary. And um, some folks in, in the Anglican Communion use that. Um, we're actually in the process right now, and you can probably talk to Father Jonathan about this, of kind of revising the original lectionary of, of Anglican tradition to make it a little bit more expansive um, so that we're reading through, say, the Psalms more regularly. We're reading through the whole Psalter more regularly, and we're reading larger chunks of Scripture. And so we'll be, I would say, uh, a good percentage of the time, the reading for the day here is going to be the same one that you're going to find in a Roman Catholic church often, but not always. Especially during ordinary time, it kind of changes. But during the liturgical season, often they're the same readings. But it's a slightly different lectionary. oh, why don't we respond the word of the Lord after? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, one way you can think about the psalm, yeah, I don't, because we don't want to deny, we don't want to say it's not the word of the Lord. Uh, it's just that this is, uh, the psalm has always been the church's hymn book, right? And so its liturgical function in the service is, has, it's, it has a particular liturgical function, which is not that it's kind of read um, aloud, but sung by all. And so often you'll hear the psalm sung. Now here we don't sing the song, we don't sing the psalm, we pray it together, right? But it's used as a way of responding to the, the readings, and so that's why. Um, but yeah, I don't want to suggest at all that it's not uh, somehow the word of the Lord as well. Uh, but it has a particular liturgical function in the service. Yeah. Other questions on the other hand? Yeah. Yeah, that's something I probably should have started uh, this all with, is where do we actually get this liturgy from? So uh, back at the, in the 16th century at the English Reformation, uh, you had basically one guy, but he had some friends too, Thomas Cranmer, who gave us this book, basically. I mean, he, he wrote, he assembled the Book of Common Prayer. And he, he basically did so by assembling both prayers from the Roman liturgy that was in current use by the Roman Catholic Church, some uh, ancient liturgies, uh, particularly of the East, and some um, what you could call um, more kind of like indigenous liturgies um, uh, of kind of the, the, it's called the, the one's called the Gallican Rite, uh, another one is kind of indigenous to the people of England themselves. So he's kind of assembling these different components of liturgies to create a book of common prayer. Over the centuries to come, you have different revisions of it to kind of fine-tune it. There are de huge debates about what's going to be in that. Um, a lot of the debates center on the particular liturgy of the Holy Eucharist. And so you have different liturgies in 1552, another major one in 1662. When um, the colonists come over to the states, right, uh, they have this problem when, uh, after the, the American Revolution, which is that part of that prayer book is that you profess allegiance to the, the monarch, right? And they say, well, we can't do that now, so we need to start thinking about our liturgy a, uh, a little bit differently. You have an American prayer book that emerges early on in uh, the early 18th century, mid-18th century, that is in a lot of ways in basic continuity with the old prayer books of 
uh, of the Reformation. It's slightly different. You have another revision in 1928 and in 1979. And then, so that Book of Common Prayer of 1979 is what you'll see in all Episcopal churches pretty much in the United States. And in a lot of Anglican churches too, uh, churches in the Anglican Church in North America. So when we talk about the Book of Common Prayer, we're talking about the American prayer book specifically, which is a version of the Book of Common Prayer, this text that kind of is what holds the whole global communion together. Um, it kind of takes on different forms in different places. But there's this kind of common um, branch, or kind of root that all the branches come from. Um, and so all of the different versions of the prayer book are usually kind of grounded in that 1662 version of the Book of Common Prayer, if that makes sense. Um, of course, we've been working on this whole new prayer book uh, for the Anglican Church in North America, which is in many ways a kind of putting that 1662 version of the prayer book in contemporary language, if that makes sense. Questions, follow-ups on that? So um, there's a couple of different liturgies in use in England right now. They have basically the equivalent of a 1979 version of the Common Prayer. It's in a different year there. I can't remember the name. It's like um, common, something common worship, common worship, something like this. Um, but in whatever province you go to in the communion, sorry, I should talk to my you're going to find basically a rendering of that old Book of Common Prayer, um, often kind of with an eye to particular linguistic conventions of a community, uh, which means often translating it into the actual language of people. Uh, and then there are all sorts of debates that go on when you're revising a prayer book, right? Um, because the prayer book embodies the theology of the church of the church. And so any sort of like theological debates that are going on <laughs> at the moment are gonna be hashed out when the prayer book is being updated. So this particularly happened in 1979 when they had this prayer book that's pretty old, 1928, you know, the church decides to update it, and then everyone says, okay, this is a chance for us to kind of get in and like revise what we want revised and you know. All kinds of uh, debates go on around changing the liturgy. That's right. Yeah, right to comes about during that, that time. Yeah, And this most recent iteration, that the Anglican Church in North America's liturgy that we're using now, so we have this liturgy that's a long form. There's also, uh, in what we've, what we've written so far, and what will eventually come out as an actual book, prayer book, there's a short form too. So instead of doing a right one and a right two, we did uh, a short form and a long form. Of course, here we love the liturgy, so we use the long form, right? It's got all these awesome prayers and stuff, but um, you might go to, say, a, a really early morning service somewhere, um, at like a 7 a.m. Eucharist or something. Or we actually, we use it for our uh, midweek Eucharist. When we want to do a kind of shortened version of the Eucharist, we use that shortened version. So instead of write one and write two, we have, it's called the, uh, the Anglican Standard Version and the renewed, what is it called? Renewed Ancient Rite, I think is what it's called. But yeah, two versions that are available for use. Other questions? This is good. Um, 
Let me jump right into say a few words for five or ten minutes or so on the liturgy of the table. A lot of the liturgy of the word is kind of more straightforward, but a lot of the liturgy of the table might need some explanation. So let me jump straight ahead to the Sursum Corda. Okay. This is called the Sursum Corda. It's how we begin uh, the liturgy of the table. And it literally just means uh, lift up your hearts. Sursum Corda, Latin, lift up your hearts, right? From this phrase, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. It's preceded that phrase by this uh, salutation, is what it's called. The Lord be with you in the response and with your spirit. Uh, you'll see this throughout most of the church's liturgies, liturgies for baptism, morning and evening prayer, these sorts of things. It's really ancient. Uh, Christians start using this because they take it from the book of Ruth. You might remember, you probably don't remember, it's a kind of obscure part of, uh, of, the, of the book of Ruth when uh, Boaz goes to kind of find Ruth and he inquires among uh, the, the farmers of, of her estate, right? And he greets them and he says, the Lord be with you. And so Christians, I guess, just thought that was a really great way to greet people. So they take it up in the liturgy. And so it's a way of kind of addressing the congregation, the Lord be with you, instead of saying, uh, all right, we're going to begin the next part of the liturgy now. We have a kind of nicer way of saying that, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Note that the priest will turn and address the congregation for this kind of exchange, right, to prepare the congregation for the table. But then he's going to invite them into this, lit in this liturgy of the table, but then he's going to turn and face the altar and face God with the people, right? This is when what's called the canon of the mass begins, right? The, the kind of liturgy of the Holy Eucharist specifically. And it begins with what's called the proper preface. Um, and what you'll see is this middle portion will change throughout the liturgical year, right? Here we have, this is the one that we use in ordinary time. It's also um, the one for, um, for, for the resurrection. It's what's called, Through Christ our Lord, who on the first day of the week overcame death and the grave, and by his glorious resurrection opened to us the way of everlasting life. The point of the proper preface is, first of all, to express praise and thanksgiving that we're even allowed to approach God in this Eucharistic moment, right? So it's always going to express praise. But then it's going to say something about the liturgical season that we're in and connect this celebration of the Holy Eucharist to that season or to that holy day, right? Okay, let me, let me keep moving here. Then we have the Sanctus. Sanctus meaning literally just holy, right? This is uh, the song of angels that we're invited to sing along, right? It comes from the book of Isaiah, from Isaiah 6 when Isaiah has a, a vision of the Lord and he hears the seraph singing this hymn. It also echoes in the book of Revelation, a similar kind of song that's sung uh, in, in the heavenly courts there. And this becomes a pretty regular part of Christian worship from about the fourth century on. It's pretty, pretty ancient. Um, when we say it, we bow at the invocation 
of the divine name. And so you'll see the clergy at the altar bow at, uh, at, at the beginning, Lord God of power and might. And then we have this reference here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Right? And you'll see often people cross themselves at this point. What's going on here? Well, this is a passage of scripture that comes, of course, from Jesus's uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? When Jesus marches, when Jesus rides the donkey into Jerusalem, the people respond to the Lord's coming, right, by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When we take this up in the liturgy, we're basically saying, um, just as Jesus processed into Jerusalem and made himself present to his people, right, so now he's coming in the sacrament, right? And so we cross ourselves in recognition that that's what's happening, that Christ is processing to us through the sacrament. Right? Then we have, after this, the beginning of the prayer of consecration. We invite the congregation to, to either stand or kneel, right? Um, because this is kind of the most holy moment of the whole service, right? It's when, it's when our Lord is making himself present in the Eucharistic elements. There are several parts of this and I think I'm going to kind of conclude with just walking through this prayer of consecration because I think it's, uh, it's very interesting. There's a lot of interesting things that are going on. So first, there's, in this first prayer, a recalling uh, of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross, right? This is how the liturgy begins, right? It's saying that this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that we're now offering on this table is a participation in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross, right? That is, uh, it's not a kind of, you could say, re-sacrifice of Jesus. This is kind of a weird thing that happened in some parts of medieval Christianity where um, people began to think that what was happening in the Holy Eucharist is that Jesus kept being kind of sacrificed over and over and over again. It's not really what's happening. But then there's a response to say, let's get rid of all of that language of sacrifice from the Eucharistic liturgy, right? Actually, this is a supper. It's not a sacrifice, right? It doesn't have anything to do with that. Well, Anglican said that's not quite right either. So what they did is they kept a lot of this language of the Eucharist as a sacrifice. We call it Eucharistic sacrifice, right? But they make clear that what's happening is not, is that, it's not a re-sacrifice, but it's a real participation in the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. There's a way in which that sacrifice of Christ on the cross that happened, right, centuries ago is kind of being fast forward and made present to you in this moment, right, in a kind of very real way. Okay, keep moving here. Next we got, oops, the second part down here, which is probably my favorite part of the prayer of consecration, which is called the epiclesis. It's a Greek word, which just means uh, calling down, or invocation, right? If you can see, what happens in this moment is that the priest is going to lay his hands over the top of the element in a kind of cross, and he's invoking the Holy Spirit to come down and sanctify these elements. It'll make the sign of the cross of the elements and say, uh, sanctify them by your Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of Christ, right? This is a very early uh, practice of celebrating uh, of, of liturgical worship that we know we see it in uh, the liturgy of Saint uh, Saint Basil of Caesarea. 
It's very important because what it's saying is that in this holy moment where the, the, the elements of bread and wine become the true body and blood of Christ, right? It's not some sort of magic trick that the priest does, right? It's not as if he kind of goes up and says abracadabra and transforms them, right? It actually is God who's the one transforming them by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The only way these things become for us the body and blood of Christ is by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Keep it, keep it moving. Then we have the words of institution, a totally essential part of the Eucharistic liturgy. From about the fourth century on, in all the various uh, Eucharistic liturgies that we have, you're just not going to find a liturgy without some use of the words of institution. Why do we have them? Okay. One of the purposes of the words of institution is to explicitly connect this celebration to the institution of the Lord's Supper with his, his disciples, right, on the eve in which he would be crucified, right? It was there in the upper room that Jesus instituted the first Eucharist, right? And we simply continue that meal, and we do so by saying the same words that he did when he instituted the supper, right? Now, after these words are said, the words of institution, you're going to see that the priest is often going to elevate them, elevate the, the, the host and the cup, right? And that's for you all to see and behold the miracle that's just taken place, right? That this has now become the true body and blood of our Lord. So we lift it up, right? Uh, just as Christ is lifted high upon the cross, now we lift high the host for you to behold. And so the congregation is often uh, invited to, do, uh, to, to respond in some way. And uh, you can do that either by crossing yourself or by doing a bow uh, or just beholding this mystery that Christ has made himself present in these elements. Often you're going to hear one of the uh, acolytes just ringing those sanctus bells really loud because it's trying to, uh, right, in the ancient world, in kind of ancient and, and medieval Christianity, often the congregation couldn't hear the priest uh, offering the mass, right? Um, and so the one thing they could hear are these, these bells that were going off. And so, you know, if they fell asleep or whatever, uh, they had this way to say, wake up, wake up, wake up, important. Here's the body and blood of Christ, right? So that's where the bells come from. Okay, last couple parts, and we'll close with this. After the words of institution and the elevation, we have uh, what's called the anamnesis. It's part of the liturgy that it means uh, remembering, recalling, right? And in different Eucharistic liturgies, this is going to be done in different ways, right? Um, in this one, what we do is we remember specifically Christ's passion, his death and resurrection and ascension, right? In other liturgies, they're going to remember, um, say, often in, in Eastern liturgies, they'll kind of rehearse the whole history of salvation, right? Um, or you'll have shortened versions which will mention creation and incarnation, right? It's some way of remembering that what we're doing here is the kind of climax of a really big story, right? That began in creation and climaxes with Christ's uh, incarnation, his death, resurrection, and ascension, and now continues in this meal that's repeated week after week. The Eucharist kind of, especially in this part of the liturgy, tells the church a story week after week to remind you the reason why we celebrate this meal is because we find ourselves in this very particular place in the history of salvation, right? And so it kind of rehearses that. 
Okay. We have two more parts that conclude this section, and I can kind of conclude with this. We have the oblation. There's this part of the liturgy that's going to offer these elements and ourselves as a sacrifice, right? Bringing back this language of sacrifice to God, of prayer and thanksgiving. Right? That we're participating with Christ's one sacrifice on the cross. And then we have the doxology and the great amen. That's by him and with him and in him and the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. And the congregation responds loudly by saying, Amen. And the bells are usually rung, right? This is called the great Amen, right? It's supposed to be said loudly. Uh, so uh, you're all expected to say it in your, in your shouting voice, right? This was a really exciting part uh, for ancient Christians in, in the liturgy. Uh, just, we, we, we hear um, Justin Martyrs, a theologian in the second century. He actually, it's one of the kind of, when he mentions the cool things that are happening in the liturgy, uh, this is one of the things. He says, this is something that people really get excited about, the great amen, because they're invited into uh, the prayer. Again, often uh, for circumstantial reasons, um, some of the prayers were not able to be heard by a lot of the congregation, but what would happen is that as soon as the bells were rung at this moment, the congregation knew, okay, this is it. This is when we're getting ready to be invited to partake of the mysteries of the Lord's Supper. And so they get ready and they say, amen. It's called the great amen. Okay. Any questions before we conclude? We'll have to pick this up as uh, uh, catechesis resumes again by finishing the rest of uh, the liturgy of the table and maybe say more about the liturgy of the word as well. Um, but any other last-minute questions about, say, uh, particular parts of the liturgy or actions that we do in the liturgy before we conclude? Okay. Well... We're going to start the liturgy in a few minutes.